0: Adversaries are relentless and they're only getting smarter faster and more sophisticated knowing their game is the only way to beat them that's why we're here learn what it takes to protect against even the most sophisticated attacks welcome to the adversary universe podcast all right
1: how's it going Adam? it's going great how you doing.
0: You know what? It has been a very, very active several weeks. We've had uh, some phenomenal feedback given the episodes that have aired so far. And I just want to say that um, I'm really excited to get into this topic today with you because I know that you have a lot to share. We have a lot of content on this topic. And a lot of this was driven by our listeners that have been really gravitating to some of the stories that we've been sharing. And as these uh, episodes pick up and garner more attention i think that we welcome rather this type of feedback from our listeners and, and we, re- we really want that feedback and any questions and the follow-up we will absolutely respond to you and so for everyone that has reached out to to the both of us and even our producers we want to thank you and we are more than happy to listen and take these stories to where you feel it's important to you and then actually when we start finding updates in the industry with the many adversaries that we're tracking and many campaigns that we're tracking we're going to keep you up to speed. As quickly as possible. But this episode is going to be pretty lengthy. And so today, I wanted to spend some time with you, Adam, walking through how aggressive China has become as a nation state adversary, right? We have lots of content, we have lots of adversaries, rather, that we've been tracking that are tied to nation state activities coming out of China. In fact, we're going to talk to several adversary profiles today, including the likes of like Wicked Panda, one of the most prolific and effective China-based adversaries that we've been tracking into the 2020s. We're gonna track Aquatic Panda and really wanna get into some of their trade craft. And more importantly, I think before we even focus on the individual adversaries themselves, I really wanna take a step back and understand why is China being so aggressive, right? I noticed that there's a really interesting article posted on CNBC back in, in June, and it was ultimately the result of Jen Easterly, the director of CISA. Basically, sharing feedback about how aggressive China has become, and ultimately, we should be paying a lot more attention to understanding how China is now potentially going to target critical infrastructure and transport infrastructure. And it's something that we're also tracking naturally within our reporting. But maybe if we spend a little bit of time just walking through exactly, you know, why it is that China has become so aggressive, and maybe even referencing the China uh, plan, right? Which, which is something that also I think has, has also lent itself to some of the activity that we're seeing increasing over over the past several years. Well,
1: that's just one of the plans, right? So let's maybe roll the clock back even further. And okay. when CrowdStrike first launched in September of 2011, the first adversary we began tracking was Deep Panda. And this was not a surprise. Prior to that, one of the impetuses to launch CrowdStrike goes back to the Aurora incident, which impacted something like 34 different companies in 2010. And that was the first really big news generating intrusion that people were talking about. And even before that, there was kind of inklings of some of the things that are going on from China. There was this phenomenal blog called Contagio by, I think her name was Mila Parker, who was basically a systems administrator at a think tank nonprofit type organization that was heavily targeted by China. And she would just routinely post things that she was finding from Mm. phishing attacks and malware. And that was really groundbreaking at the time because everything else was being hushed. Don't talk about what's happening from this China perspective. And when CrowdStrike launched and we started talking about Deep Panda, that kind of got into this era of organizations were getting compromised by China and then they would publicly disclose we had a breach. It was an advanced persistent threat And that was kind of the end of it, right? That was the that was code for it was China, and so it's not our fault because it's a nation state. What are we going to be able to do about that? And when you think about why China is doing this, China is in the process of trying to build itself into a a regional and ultimately a global hegemon. And I recognize this might be a little bit of a aggressive uh, position for me to take, but you know this is my view on the matter, and I think we've seen. Quite a few policies come out of China over the years, and we're gonna go into what some of those are because the Made in China 2025 policy is one of the newer ones. It's just a small subset of what they've been up to. Mm -hmm. But keep in mind that China is moving from an agrarian kind of culture into a more technologically advanced urbanized one. I think they see how others potentially see China as being the world's workshop. And they want to change that. They, they want to be a leader. They want to be able to have influence and be able to drive decision-making in a way that is consistent with Chinese ideologies. Mm-hmm. And so we've been tracking at CrowdStrike ever since our inception, the various five-year plans. I think when we started, it was the 12th five-year plan, and then it was the 13th five-year plan. And, and now yeah. we're, we're towards the end of the 14th five-year plan, or, or at least partially through it. And each one of these five-year plans is effectively a shopping list for what China is going to be trying to develop, right? Mm -hmm. Not to necessarily say steal, but going back to the 70s, when we first opened up relations with China, in order for businesses to engage in China, they had to get into these joint partnership deals, which involved the transfer of intellectual property. And there were a, a number of things that they did from a policy perspective to enforce western technology and capabilities being transferred into china and as we get into the 2000s this starts to advance and it's augmented by the theft of intellectual property you have to remember that a lot of the companies most of the companies in china are either state-owned enterprises meaning the chinese government owns part of it or they have interest right if if you're doing business in china frequently you're going to have to have somebody from the chinese communist Party. Situated with your C-suite effectively that they can kind of start to call the shots and push the direction And so you've got this integration of government into industry and into business And then you've got policies that are meant to drive those businesses and make them more successful And intellectual property and human intelligence collection are both components to that In addition to some of the policies that they put into place This has been escalating over the past couple of years More and more things under the name of national security have been emerging out of China and driving a lot of those conversations. And we'll come back to that later as well. But so let's start with kind of the very broad steps. You have the five-year plans. Every time China releases a new five-year plan, our analysts are going through that to understand what are the technologies that they're prioritizing because that effectively translates to their targeting list. In the most recent one, artificial intelligence is prominent there. Network and telecom 5G type things are in there. Healthcare is another one. As I mentioned, as they move from an agrarian society and as they develop more capital, for the first time in their history, they're really dealing with a middle class that's growing. And not just in terms of numbers, but also physical stature. They're getting fast food and alcohol and all of the vices that make you fat. And so medical technology for preventable healthcare, things like heart stents and diabetes and cancer treatments and protocols and things like that, diagnostics, all of that are things that currently are being serviced or sourced from Western sources. China recognizes that if they can develop that technology and capabilities domestically, they could service their own market and then also use that to expand influence to countries nearby China. And to that, they have another policy that's been very powerful, which is the Belt and Road Initiative. And part of that, there's this digital component, the digital Silk Road or digital Belt and Road, where they are exporting technology and competing on infrastructure projects regionally and also across the globe, even into Latin America, South America, Africa, all over Eurasia, they're doing this to win contracts and places where they could put Chinese workers to help build and, and develop those contracts and support that. And with that comes influence.
0: Sure. Right? So, influence with respect to the, how far reaching they've become within, and they're clearly outlining these goals in these, and basically their playbooks, right? So, that say, here's what we're targeting, here's essentially where we plan on expanding. They're not I'm hiding I'm sure it. a lot of You're not hiding it exactly. And I'm sure that a lot of it is to build their economic strength, as you mentioned, but they want to be a powerhouse by 2025. And and well,
1: 2049, I think 2049 is the major thing made in China 2025 is really specific to a lot of the chip manufacturing and some of the kind of high tech, like cutting
0: edge manufacturing, but by
1: 2049, they want to be the regional and potentially global hegemon. And so you go back to that belt and road initiative. I was in Israel last summer. And I was speaking at their Cyber Week events there. And I was talking about China. And I said to a bunch of the folks there, I said, look, who's building this metro underneath Tel Aviv? And they were like, oh, it's a Chinese company. I was like, well, who's building that port outside of Tel Aviv? And they were like, Chinese company. I'm like, what about the port up in Haifa? And they're like, a Chinese company. Like, so you've got Chinese companies coming in, bringing Chinese technology to build these ports, build all of your automation. What's going to happen when China says, and by the way, they're leasing some of this stuff and they've gonna, they're getting sweetheart deals on some of this stuff. What's going to happen when China tells Israel, we don't want you to support Taiwan, right? And if you do, this is going to get real expensive and real problematic, right? That's how they're building the influence across the globe through this Belt and Road Initiative so that they can start to leverage that when they need to and that's i think the concern that people need to be thinking about right now
0: yeah is they become this powerhouse and i hate to make this sound like we're trying to create this we're fear-mongering by any means but i know i've been reading some reports from the fbi on this topic and the fbi back in a video back in 2022 even references that their experts believe that china's goal is to control entire supply chains across the globe and manipulate global and domestic market conditions and the more influence they have as you mentioned within major civil engineering projects like this, the more control that, that they'll have on influencing decisions that you know impact geopolitical situations right? That, that we're tracking. And so I know we haven't even gotten into the espionages yet, but just in terms of their how far-reaching they've become,
1: it's definitely something that, that we should be concerned about, right? And oh, I mean, we haven't even spilled over to the cyber stuff. 100%. You know? And look, you know? I mean, this has escalated and, and, and it, it speeds up every year. There's so much to unpack here. But if you think about the espionage part, espionage is how they're driving some of this stuff. If you're doing a major infrastructure project, pick your favorite. I don't know. Let's say high-speed rail in Eurasia. And it's a, a European company and a Chinese company, and they're bidding for this work. And there's a huge negotiation that goes into that, right? And there's bids and there's proposals and all of this stuff that happens. Well, China is going to hack into the country who's trying to Launch this infrastructure project, this high speed rail. They're going to hack into all the competitors and they're going to know when they sit down at the negotiating table exactly what everybody's positions are. Not to mention the fact that if the other competitor has a better technology than they do, they're going to take that and they're going to figure out a way to leapfrog. They're going to take that existing technology and incrementally make it better so that when they show up at that negotiating table, they could say, well, their technology is inferior to ours. And they're charging you more money for it. And here's what we're going to do. And they're doing this because they want to win the work. They don't care about the money. They care about being able to win that project so that they can build the influence of China in that region. And they're doing these little kind of micro aggressions, if you will, all over the globe all of the time. If we look at our global threat report that we released, there was an image in there that talks about the regions and sectors targeted by Chinese nexus activity. Every geographic region, every business vertical are impacted by this. One of the things that I remember before CrowdStrike, I used to work in the the government space and I spent some time in West Africa. And I remember in 2003, 2004, being taken aback by just how many Chinese nationals were there and i was asking like what's going on like i don't see a lot of americans here i see a whole bunch of chinese nationals and what they were telling me is like they're oh they're here building soccer stadiums they're here building mm-hmm. uh, all of these different projects and so back then it, i was like oh that's nice of them it didn't click yeah. that there was a influence component to it um Absolutely. but then fast forward a couple of years and there was a big story about how the african union which had a building that they built in, I think it was in Ethiopia, was completely wired for sound and it was built by China. So this is kind of, you should look the gift horse in the mouth, I think in this situation, because all around the globe, there's these gift horses showing up and oftentimes there's strings attached and there's all kinds of things that you're gonna find yourself in a tough situation to get out of. And they're doing this financially too, right? They're lending money all around the globe as well. So it's really a concerted effort. Yeah, I've seen
0: that they've been using a variety of means to get access to proprietary information. And because they've grown into this economic powerhouse, or at least they're getting there, they have been acquiring companies across the globe, including American firms, right? They're getting access to intellectual property. They're forming these joint ventures that ultimately even compel whatever partnerships, American or non-American based companies to share trade secrets. And so that it lends itself to them Having implants across a variety of industries that uh, allow them access to this IP that they ultimately use for their own you know, intentions, right? And so, what's interesting is that chart. If you, for those listeners that are not familiar with the Global Threat Report, uh, our 2023 Global Threat Report actually breaks down how China Nexus adversaries were observed targeting almost 39 global industry sectors, if not 39 global industry sectors across 20 geographic regions. These are fantastic chart that highlights the various adversaries, the geographic regions, and rather the industries that were impacted. And it's a really great breakdown because to your point, Adam, when we look at the sectors that were impacted in Africa, we have telecom, we have healthcare, government, financial, When you go to North America, everything from NGOs down to manufacturing and tech. And so I think that there isn't necessarily any prejudice when it comes to who they're targeting, which I think is also very important for any listener that is under the assumption that they are not a target of interest by a Chinese based adversary. I think it, it actually lent itself to the fact that you should be very well aware of the fact that your company may have information that could ultimately benefit them if they got their hands on it. And so just be cognizant as we get into some of the tradecraft breakdown here in this episode, just try to apply it to how you protect your data and how your data ultimately impacts your business. And what would happen if that data left your organization and went to a competitor or subsequently spun up a competitor that could drive you out of business, right? So there's a lot that we can cover just on the implications and the impact of that.
1: And one interesting thing, you mentioned North America, and we we started off talking about the special Microsoft monoculture episode. Then I think it's yeah. important to note that the there was 25 organizations that were impacted in that breach of the Microsoft Azure cloud. Yeah, that's and right. yeah. those organizations, I think we mentioned it in that podcast, but they weren't, just the 25 that they were able to get access to. That was the 25 that they prioritized at that point in time.
0: Yeah. And so yeah. if
1: that access had remained persistent, that would have grown vastly, right? If it hadn't been caught and nipped in the bud. And then the other thing you touched on, which is really important, you mentioned telecom. Telecom is something China has targeted globally. And I think a lot of people would point to what's in the news, right? Huawei and 5G, but... There's another component to that, which we should also just quickly touch on, which is that there's a lot of folks that China's got issues with that are not in China. And a lot of those are Chinese nationals that they would like to bring back to China to have a chat with them. And so telecom is a great opportunity for them to look for and identify individuals. By hacking into a mobile telecom provider, there's something called the CDR, call data record. And if you take that information and you have persistent access into the telecom and all I know is Christian's phone number, I can identify where Christian is and potentially I can identify who's with Christian and where they're going. And Mm. that also corresponds to the fact that they've set up these somewhat illegal police stations all over the globe and they will put pressure on Chinese nationals who have left China and say, hey, you need to come back with us. We, we, we need to talk to you and compel them to come back to China to ultimately stand trial for something.
0: Oh, wow. That actually rem- reminds me of one of the, out of the many adversaries that we're tracking, Aquatic Panda has been known to target telecom. I think we, maybe we can spend a little bit of time explaining who Aquatic Panda is, I think based upon some of our, or rather based upon some of Our recent research and some updates to our our adversary profile reports, they are likely a contractor serving under the Ministry of State Security,
1: right? Well, you you mentioned something that a lot of people might not be familiar with, which is the Ministry of State Security. So um, let's take a little pause and break down who are the threat actors inside of China. In some cases, we have it down to individual units and even Mm -hmm. individuals. But there's really two primary organizations that we encounter from a cyber perspective. The first being the PLA, the People's Liberation Army. And for many years, the PLA and what we would call three PLA or the third general staff department of the PLA was responsible for their offensive cyber capabilities. And under three PLA, there were kind of 12 different bureaus and each bureau, a lot of folks will remember the Mandiant APT1 report, which had quite a bit of coverage several years ago. And in that report, they highlighted a group that we tracked as Comment Panda. And in that report, they were able to get attribution into the first bureau of the general staff department inside of the 3PLA in Shanghai. And it was unit 61398 was the military unit cover designator or muc for that unit. There was 12 other components that had different tasking, either geographic tasking where it was focused on US Canada or Africa or LATAM or Middle East. There was also units like we had put out a report on a group we called Putter Panda, which was Mukti 61486, also out of Shanghai. And their whole focus was on space technologies, satellite communications and signals intelligence. So all of that we had pretty good track on and in 2015, a bilateral agreement was signed between China and many different countries. They, they signed a series of these bilats, but one was with the United States. It was signed by President Obama and President Xi. And that kind of agreed to no economic espionage, no commercial hacking. And a lot of folks kind of interpreted that as China being like, okay, we understand, we crossed the line, we're going to do better this time. Sure. But my skeptical self. I think that at that same time, President Xi knew that they were going into a reorganization of the PLA. So up until that point, the PLA had something like seven different military regions and each region had different autonomous capabilities. And what they were restructuring into was more of a command structure like what we have here in the US. I think the Russians would claim that they influenced the Chinese moving in that direction. But effectively, rather than having these seven or nine, I forget which one it was, different military regions, they moved into kind of northern, central, southern, eastern, western, and they reorganized all of their cyber forces into the PLA strategic support force. And underneath that was the network division, NSD, I think it was. And so the network division is responsible for all of their cyber operations, cyber activity, and that included reorganizing all of their cyber forces, things that we call technical reconnaissance bases were organized into those command structures. And so when they did this reorg, I think they understood that that would take some of their capabilities from the PLA side offline. And so she could get into that agreement, that bilat, and safely know that there would be a change in their behavior and that they wouldn't be seeing all of these different PLA cyber operations being exposed in, in in by industry and Twitter and things like that. And it took probably a year, maybe two years, before we started seeing some of those organizations come back online and, and they were reconstituted and changed pretty significantly at that point. And as that was happening, we started to see a shift where more and more of those cyber operations moved to the Ministry of State Security. I, I would say it's more like an MI5 type of thing where they have intelligence responsibilities and mandates as well as law enforcement responsibilities and mandates. And we started seeing a shift to operations under the MSS, which was consistent with some of the politics going on in China as well. I won't go into all of that because I think that could be a whole other podcast. But moving into that Ministry of State Security we also started to see the reliance on contractors and so groups like wicked Panda and Gothic Panda, which has been since kind of pretty heavily outed through a indictment from the U S department of justice. Um, yeah, yeah, so that's where we kind of started seeing the shift into some of these other groups. So back to your point from many minutes ago around (laughs) aquatic Panda, sorry, I'm, I could talk about this all day.
0: No, I knew. I knew this would be the case. That's why I figured we, we would spend a lot of time talking to this. And I mean, I, I think this is something that's extremely interesting. I, I get this question asked all the time going into personal events and people ask me what I do and I tell them i in cybersecurity and you know, it all comes. At some point someone says, oh, why is China hacking everybody? And I have to kind of give them a 30 second or a minute iteration of everything we're talking about right now. So unpacking this, I think, on this episode is fantastic. And I think the listeners deserve to hear this. (laughs) Well, yeah, I I do want to come back to understanding also in terms of the the, the U.S. DOJ. right? I know back in 2020, you mentioned this just now, they indicted multiple individuals linked to Wicked Panda. Uh, And it seems like it's becoming more common where DOJ is getting involved in chasing down these guys and the effort is being made. But but what does that mean? Also, I'm very curious about in terms of our relationship with China. Right. I feel like that is also going to be an agitator in some capacity.
1: Well, I, I think it's a signal. Right. And so when DOJ does this, right, they're not going to arrest, in most cases, PLA officers because they're not leaving China. They're not showing up at Disneyland in Orlando and being like, we're here for tourism. So so I think it's not about indicting them because they plan to get an arrest. It's sending a signal to China and it's saying, we know and knock it off. Right. And so China is, for all of the things we've been saying, China is very conscious of the appearance and mm-hmm. of how they are perceived. Perceive, and so yeah. they don't want to be seen in a negative light. They really want to portray themselves as being a responsible and thoughtful player in the international domain. And to that end, they get real nervous when people start talking about human rights abuses or yeah. cyber espionage or some of the things that you might associate with China. And so I think to the extent that you can argue, why do these indictments? It, it's a tool that we have that lets us signal to China, like, Hey, this we know, and, and we don't like it. And so, so if, that I, I that's see. kind of one of the tools.
0: So if we put a big spotlight on their tradecraft and their activity, and we're announcing publicly that these are the guys we're chasing because of All these cyber offenses. Do you think the impact of that, even geopolitically with companies or rather with countries that are getting involved with China, do you think it makes them second guess those relationships?
1: No, I think that's a whole other dynamic where, you know, depending on what country you're talking about, there's either a financial reason that they are in espionage, they talk about things like mice, right? Money, ideology, compromise, and ego. And I think with some of these more autocratic type countries they see the technology that china brings as being able to give them the type of complete control that they have in china right being able to leverage some of the artificial intelligence that china is using for tracking individuals and for powering surveillance equipment and surveillance type technology all of those things are very useful for autocratic regimes that want to maintain control other countries that have financial issues, right? So let's call that one ideology. On the, the Back to that MICE model, right? Money, right? Mm-hmm. If a country has economic woes and China's giving them cheap money, free money, offering to do all this stuff for them, then they're like, great, that that helps me, right? That helps my country, that helps my people, that helps me as a leader. And so you have the money component to it. And then you also have the aspect of China coming in and using to a certain extent that ego play with some of these different leaders and fanning them and showing them all this love and supporting them and bringing all these gifts and praise to them. So that's another tactic that they have. And then uh, certainly they have human intelligence operations occurring in lots of these countries. And there is a number that, again, back to uh, Turbine Panda is one that there was a phenomenal DOJ indictment on which showed just how they're using human assets inside of companies all across the globe. In that instance, they implanted malware using a USB stick that was delivered by a human-controlled asset inside of one of these companies. And they actually, in that, they read a, a CrowdStrike blog post that we put out years ago. This is all in the indictment. They read this blog post and then they instructed the human to delete logs to make it so that the company couldn't find the malware. So oh, wow. yeah, there's there's a lot going on when it comes to Chinese operations across the globe and how they're able to be efficient and effective.
0: So the DOJ disclosure of this in, of these indictments, as you mentioned, it's sending a signal, but very little impact to other countries that are partnering with China, and so that really. It's obviously awareness on our side, uh, maybe awareness with like the five eyes. But other than that, China is still full steam ahead on expanding their reach across these varying economies.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they it's know. undeterred. Right. Like In some of these cases, they're like, yeah, great. Like, I don't care that it's China or that yeah. they have surveillance technology that they also have eyes on. As long as I'm still in power, I don't really care what they do.
0: Yeah. So that's something to think about. Wow. All right. Let's go back to aquatic panda okay. Because I think that that could be like a whole yeah, different episode. Like, <laughs> I think
1: from my perspective, the individual threat actors, right? That's all pieces of the puzzle that are kind of tied yeah. back to this broader thing we've been talking about, which is their strategy. And there's a good book for anybody that's interested in... Reading a little bit more about that, because it's going to it's going to be hard for us to go down all of these paths. But there's a book called The Long Game by Rush Doshi, which is all about China's strategy. And it's certainly one opinion. Right. But an interesting read on some of their capabilities. And it's interesting to point out, too, that methodology of doing the naming and shaming is maybe effective on China, but it might not necessarily be on another country like Russia where they're like, yeah, great, whatever, you caught us, we're still doing it. So there's different techniques and different tools that the government has to deal with all of these different threats.
0: Yeah, I think they are, they have been very persistent. They have a lot of resources. They're not slowing down by any means. If you go bring this back all the way to adversaries that are targeting telecom, you mentioned that they have a very big focus in telecom just because of the sheer benefits of access, right, that this would grant them. And so the more successful they are with Respect to compromising or even having implants within the telecom industry, the faster they are to getting access into visibility and surveillance campaigns, and we're just they're just strengthening their espionage initiatives. And so, if we start looking at again, aquatic panda, they've been focusing primarily on telecom and tech, certain government sectors across Asia, and they're an interesting adversary because they've been a little more active than even what we've seen with Wicked Panda. Again, Wicked Panda even having several individuals being indicted by the DOJ, but again, they're just kind of freely doing their thing. So tell me a little bit about Aquatic Panda. Aquatic Panda seems to be a more recent and active adversary that we've profiled.
1: Aquatic Panda, we picked up really in May, 2020. And that kind of overlaps a little bit with some of the indictment of, and, and the exposure of Wicked Panda. And yeah. Wicked Panda, by the way, one of the cooler implants that I remember from them, we found the keywords. Chinese language keywords for things that they were looking for in text messages at the telecoms. So yeah, that was wild. So now you can start to understand what they're looking for keywords like democracy or things like that, that are, there's this concept of like the five poisons in China, which is democracy, Tibet, the Falun Gong, the Uyghurs, Hong Kong, and Taiwan. Ultimately, uh, Hong Kong, I think, is no longer a concern now that the mainland is kind of fully exerted their control and used national security law to do so. But when you think about those five poisons, those are the things that they're most concerned about, because those are the dangerous ideas that they don't want propagating through China. Aquatic Panda being one of the newer threat actors, we first picked them up in 2020. And they're active as of this month. They go by different community identifiers. Uh, If you want to use the, I think the old Microsoft naming was Chromium and now it's Charcoal Typhoon. I think Google calls it Tag 22. There's Control X, Bounty Glad, uh, Bronze University, Red Scully. And we could probably do a whole other episode about adversary naming. And I think we'll put that on the list, right? I know Christian's got this little notebook he's always scribbling. So let's put attribution. We're definitely doing that.
0: Attribution is a good one. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Really good. And in terms of who they target, it's pretty broad. We've seen them targeting academia is a, a great target for anybody that wants to steal intellectual property. A lot of cutting edge research happens in academia. There's also a lot of individuals they might be interested in. In academia, China had something called the Thousand Talents Program, which was them sending Chinese students into American universities to embed themselves there. But also taking American professionals and professors and bringing them to China and showing them what a great place China is to visit and foster that relationship with those individuals and China. So academia, a good target, professional and consulting services, another target of this group, international government. Architectural and engineering. Again, this probably ties back to some of those big projects that they're working on. They've built dams all over the globe. They've built power plants, all kinds of things. Defense and military, NGO. NGO and think tanks are heavily targeted by every nation state adversary. And the reason being is that NGOs and think tanks often don't necessarily have the resources to properly secure themselves and That's where a lot of these ideas that ultimately make their way into government originate, right? These policy accelerators and think tanks and nonprofits are coming up with ideas and sharing those ideas to politicians and to diplomats and to the administration. And if you you think about the U.S. government being a hard target, those think tanks and those NGOs might be a softer target. And so they can get a lot of that information from there before it even fully emotes into a policy idea. They target local government as well. Technology, media, telecoms being a huge target and for a number of reasons. So with telecom, yes, you can get access to CDR and understand individual movements and where they are and who they're with. But a lot of telecoms have managed services and hosted services and things like that. And so if you get into the telecom, you can now move upstream against their other customers. You exploit that trust relationship. So it's kind of hack once benefit many by going yeah, after yeah. telecoms and ISPs and, and that type of organization. Yeah.
0: And cloud providers, though,
1: right? Yeah. So yeah, and yeah. aerospace. I mean, we just saw that the C919, the first kind of you could argue Chinese built aircraft is in production and testing and, and whatnot. So aerospace a huge target, both from a defense perspective, but also from civilian aviation perspective. Healthcare insurance, energy, all of these are essential to China's continued growth and trajectories. So this is basically the 14th five-year plan shopping list associated with Aquatic Panda. And they're targeting South Africa, Hong Kong, Taiwan, Spain, Bhutan, US, Pakistan, Indonesia, the Philippines, Mongolia, Japan, India, Brazil, Europe, all, all over the globe, they're operating. And so they are one of the Spread actors that are are pretty active that are out there. And we could talk about some of their TTPs, but ultimately I think we assess that they are likely a contractor who's working for the Ministry of State Security based on their intelligence collection requirements and some of the the other things that we've seen them target.
0: So I know in terms of just how they work across the kill chain, they've been Using log 4 jscan scan, they have been using AquaTone. They are getting in uh, using spear phishing campaigns, so they're very su- successful in, in their spear phishing campaigns using domains that they've registered for the sake of typo squatting, right? With like Namecheap, and so they have been very successful exploiting Microsoft vulnerabilities. And then there's a whole plethora of tools that they've used, including like
1: Orca's RAT. They've been using Cobalt Strike, R- Brute Ratel is another one that's that's becoming I saw very that. popular with threat yeah. actors and Cobalt Strike and Brute Rattel try to position themselves as being pen testing tools and post exploitation frameworks. But we tend to see a lot of threat actors using it as well. But why Aquatic Panda? Why do we call them aquatic? So uh, a lot of times when we come up with a name for a threat actor, we're trying to find something clever that we could leverage from their tradecraft or their infrastructure and things that they use. And so with Aquatic Panda, they were uh, primarily using... Glassfish, which is a open source project, and it was something that they were using as setting up their for getting access and setting up command and control. So I think when we were looking at that was one of the characteristic or defining things that we associated with that group. And so Glassfish, Aquatic kind of all tied together. So sometimes Mm -hmm. our names are super clever and sometimes they're just super, super (laughs) obvious. Super obvious. Yeah. I I get that question asked
0: all the time when I'm in meetings, like, why did you name the adversary this? Or like the putter panda one actually comes up.
1: I use that as a reference. Do do you know Um, what the putter panda one was?
0: Yeah, they were targeting this group
1: of politicians that were at a golf event, right? No, 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 it was uh, similar, but they were doing a lot of military conference related things related to missiles. The analyst who was working on it, he assessed that if you're going to a conference for the military, you're probably going there to play golf. And so we call it Putter Panda. <laughs> Same thing. Tomato, tomato. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's too funny. And by the way, listeners, if you do have
0: an adversary that piques your interest or you're wondering how we came up with the name, again, feel free to send us a note. Our contact details are in the show notes. And again, we value a lot of the feedback that you've been sending so far. So Adam I think we can spend another 30 minutes talking about these adversaries hours. or yeah absolutely probably hours just given how much is coming out of China the impact that they're having their reach they are very aggressive they're not stopping but I think there's a consistency with respect to the way that they've been targeting their respective victims right and so if we look at every one of these adversaries from Wicked Panda to uh, Aquatic Panda they're still using tradecraft or TTPs, which include spear phishing, they're looking for exposed services on the web, they're exploiting a lot of Microsoft, as we saw, and we discussed briefly in our Microsoft episode, which is released at this point. And so there's consistency at some if you start taking a look at the big picture, right, with the exception of physically having an implant within an organization to steal data, which is really much more an insider threat program, right, we can talk about that later. But the consistency in their tradecraft seems to just be we have spear phishing campaigns that lead to the successful deployment of a tool. And naturally, that tool could be anything that we mentioned earlier. And then they're exfiltrating data. And so they're using web shells and dropping web shells where they see fit on exposed assets or internet facing assets. And those seem to be very successful. Is there anything else that the listener should be aware of in terms of the evolution of the tradecraft from these varying panda based adversaries?
1: Well, just I think that they've really up leveled it. What used to be characterized, you know, you'd hear people say Chinese activity was smash and grab. They would come in, they'd steal a bunch of stuff, they'd get kicked out. And then if they needed more stuff, they'd come back and do it again. And I think that is gone, right? They've up leveled, they've built themselves into a proper kind of intelligence collection platform. They've been focusing on persistent access, going after telecoms and ISPs gives them a lot of that persistent access. So I'd say that this threat has matured and they've matured significantly in the last five or six years to a point that makes them way more problematic and concerning for enterprises, I think, than they previously had
0: been. And it's not slowing down.
1: It's not slowing down. And we're seeing we're starting to see the impact of that. Right. We're seeing organizations who are losing revenue or being driven completely out of business by competitors that have basically stolen their technology and marketed it out of China and for cheaper.
0: Yeah. And that leads to job loss. Capital loss. Ripple effect. Capital loss.
1: Exactly. And a shift of control, right? It's shifting the the global control and allowing them to build this influence and consolidate their power into a base that lets them start to drive geopolitical issues. And you, you start to see how they're aligning with Russia and Iran right now. And, and so there's significant consequences for our future that come from this. And I think this is something that organizations need to understand and, and take seriously, but also a factor in that China thinks long-term strategy. They're thinking 2049. Yeah. Most businesses are thinking Q2, Q3. So we need to really start to reorient ourselves to become more strategic and less tactical as businesses and as network defenders and really think about this is what's happening today. Where is it going and why? That's where intelligence becomes the the powerful differentiator for organizations. So for the
0: listeners that have hung into this episode that I I think is so fascinating, there's so much more content that we have on this topic. Quite frankly, again, we can speak to this for hours. If you haven't read the Global Threat Report, uh, 2023 Threat Report basically sums up our observations from 2022. What we notice in this report is that China... Uh, Nexus adversaries were responsible for the most active targeted intrusion campaigns, as well as the most prolific actors when it came to targeting like telecom, telecommunications ultimately represent uh, these Chinese based adversary groups with the capacity to amplify their intelligence collection efforts, amplify their surveillance efforts, and really have influence across a multitude of verticals and industries that I think they haven't had any prejudice against. And they are everywhere. And we're seeing this activity increase substantially. And so if I had some advice for the listeners, if you're concerned, or if there's any fear that this, this wasn't the intention is to bring fear, but really more awareness of the fact that these campaigns are, they're successful, but they're not changing. The scripts are there. We see the adversaries using phishing attacks, and we, we know that a lot of organizations still have issues, maybe even running a response program. We meet with uh, organizations across the globe that don't necessarily even know how to respond to something like intellectual property theft and having a program or a plan in place that ultimately allows you to understand what impact this would have to your business. I think it's the first step in knowing where your data is and what that means to your business if that data leaves. But then enforcing things like MFA, which could be a very generic statement. Sure, by me just saying this, but I think there's some interesting ways for you to protect your organization from adversaries who establish a foothold in your enterprise and then try to move laterally when there's some controls that we can have in place or you can have in place to prevent that activity from proliferating so quickly. What was your most recent stat on adversary lateral movement or breakout time?
1: The global threat report was 84 minutes for breakout time and the CrowdStrike threat hunting report, which is a more recent report, was 79 minutes. So these adversaries are getting yeah. incrementally faster. And I think that the big challenge is when I talk to organizations is how fast are you? I started asking, did you get 14 minutes faster? And now it's, did you get five minutes faster? And so I think the, the better question, and from having asked that question, what I've learned is the better question is, can you even quantify the speed at which you're able to identify, investigate, and remediate an incident.
0: Those are scary numbers. I think visibility, understanding where that data is, policies and, and enforcing those policies around who should have access to data. I mean, there's so many different programs we can go down and security controls that we can discuss. But purpose of the podcast is to give you more awareness into the adversaries that we're tracking. But we have a lot more data on nation state adversaries that we'll be publishing more reports on and more episodes on. And so I think there's a lot more we can discuss in in some upcoming episodes where we'll have some guest speakers that focus both on some of the economic impact that these campaigns have within different parts of the country. We'll have actually some historians at some point walk through their perspective on the evolution of China. I think it'd be great to even maybe invite some of those authors of some of the books that we referenced at some point. We'll see who we can get as a special guest. But and then, of course, we want your feedback on other topics within this ecosystem of attackers or adversaries that are tied to China. And if you have any more questions, again, we'll be looking for some feedback. Any any closing words for our listeners, Adam?
1: Stay safe out there. There's, <laughs> uh, there's <laughs> monsters.
0: There are monsters out there. But we're here to protect you. So thanks again for listening. This is the Adversary Universe podcast. I'm Christian Rodriguez. I'm with Adam Myers, head of our counter-adversary operations team. Thank you so much. We'll catch you on the next episode. Thanks so much for listening to this episode. If you like what you're hearing, subscribe to our podcast and head over to crowdstrike.com forward slash adversaries to learn more about the many bad guys we track. Thanks for listening. and We'll see you next time on the Adversary Universe podcast. This is the Adversary Universe podcast.